Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M. Today's guest is listed on the bio on his website as the master of the fungal universe. I think that's a great title. And the bio actually reads very well, so I'm actually going to read it instead of putting my spin on it. Over 40 years ago, a lone scientist began exploring this critical but neglected inhabitant of the human body. Born and raised in Lebanon, Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum is director of the Center for Medical Mycology at Case Western Reserve University. He began his scientific journey in England, studying candida, a species of fungi fungi that, when allowed to grow uncontrolled, can cause candidiasis, an infection that affects and afflicts millions of people worldwide. This provoked his curiosity about the whole area of fungal microorganisms in the human body. Through the next four decades of research, he discovered that while there was a massive rise in studies of bacteria, fungus were largely ignored. One reason is that fungal organisms tend to be highly unstable, making them extremely difficult to study. For the longest time, Dr. Ghanoum's work was known only to a minority within the scientific community. While many have heard of candida, few people have any idea of the critical role that fungus plays in human health. Through his research, Dr. Ghanoum established that fungal organisms consist and constitute an essential part of the microbiome. In fact, in 2010, Dr. Ghanoum was the first scientist to identify over 100 native species of fungi in the oral cavity. Like with other bacteria, there are good fungi as well as bad fungi. And just as it was starting to be discovered that we need positive bacteria in our guts, most people today are shocked to learn that their health depends on flourishing colonies of helping fungi. So we're starting to now understand that there's a fungal bacterial partnership or relationship within our microbiomes. And Dr. Ghanoum has been front and center to the research looking at this entire space. In 2016, he discovered that harmful fungi and bacteria joined forces to create digestive biofilms. And we get into this in the podcast. Super fascinating information. They work synergistically to protect themselves from aggression from other microbes and our immune system. The microscopic world now has its own scientific name when it looks at fungi. It's called the mycobiome, which Dr. Ghanoum coined. He is also the author of over 400 peer-reviewed papers, has been cited thousands upon thousands of times. He has been funded by the National Institutes of Health multiple times, including some new research looking to figure out ways to help deal with fungi that are now resistant to many of the bugs we have. On top of this, he has now started a company called Biome, B-I-O-H-M, and is just really laying out a new landscape for what human health is as it is related to the microbiome, and in this case specifically, the combination of bacteria and fungi together. So this is a conversation that I've been wanting to have for a while since I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Ghanoum last February when we were teaching together in New York City. We had a really lively conversation around the health of the human species when it comes to using the microbiome as a bellwether of understanding what our risk is moving forward in human health. Is the ecosystem dysfunctional? Is it functional? Is it diverse? Is it not diverse? And how does that all play out? And so we get into all of that in this conversation. And so with that, let me leave you with a beginning conversation with Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum.
Well, good day and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ganum. It's an absolute pleasure to see you again since our last meeting in New York City. So I hope you're having a great day and it's a pleasure to see you. Likewise, uh, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to see you, Chris. So you're one of the world-renowned researchers in the space of the fungal biome and as well as the microbiome. And it's clear over the past three to four decades that we're gaining a vast knowledge that the ecosystem of microbes that exists within our hollow spaces, and I think of those as our sinuses, our lungs, our gut, and uh, in females, the vagina, and then frankly, we, it's not hollow, but I count the skin as well, are driving the symbiotic relationship between humans for health and the microbes, but also could go sideways contralaterally to a pathogenetic mechanism and leading to disease. Your work has shown a really bright light on not just the bacteria, which is what mostly gets talked about, but also the fungal friends that live within us. Let's start, you know, because I always like to go upstream. I want to go back to whatever beginning we can sort of understand this reality and go upstream to where it starts with mom. Because I think if we can go back to mom and maybe mom's mom and her mom, wherever you want to look at it, how does it all start for neonate, a baby that then leads to the infant's microbiome, which becomes a child and turns into adults and inevitably drives health status? Absolutely. I think that's where it all begins, as you say, with the mom uh, when they have, you know, even pre-delivery, pre, uh, uh, you know. So if the mom's microbiome is a healthy and a good situation, it clearly this would give a better chance for the baby to have a healthy microbiome. However, a lot of the time now, studies have been shown with maternity, you know, it's not easy. Women are exposed to stress, and of course, especially taking care of the family, working these days, it's not just you are at home, and all this put a lot of stress, and stress has been shown very clearly to affect the microbiome. In addition to this, of course, what you alluded to before about the diet. What type of food the mom takes, for example, does it take a lot of sugar and a lot of carbs, which obviously affect the microbiome. But in the good hand also, does she take fiber? And also it has been shown that moms who are pregnant and they take fiber, their kids have less allergy, you know. So uh, also the exposure to the environment. These days we live in an environment where our a lot of our uh, uh, vegetables are exposed to pesticides and this sort of thing. And again, these have been shown to have a detrimental effect on the microbiome. And as you, you know, having a balanced microbiome is key to having a good health, not just gut health, but overall health. And that's why these maternal situations could affect. In addition to this, uh, that's we are talking about even pre uh, delivery, but then after delivery, what sort, what way, what method of delivery is it? Caesarean versus, uh, you know, the usual normal uh, way of, of the delivery, or uh, are we having with the with the uh, delivery? What type of food after that we feed them? Are they breastfed versus uh, bottle fed or uh, formula fed? So all of this can shape the. Uh, really the microbiome of the child from the day they are born up to maybe three years, you know, uh, this period where the lo a lot of uh, the baby is trying to have a stabilized microbiome. And after that, the things start to stabilize because then there are other factors which more not only with mom, but also with the child 
what he is exposed to, he or she is exposed to, will also affect the microbiome. Right. And so you start to understand. So the microbiome, and again, you're not just speaking to bacteria. You're speaking to the whole biome, which includes archaea, includes viruses, but in specific in your research, fungus. And so if we go back over the past few thousand years, even not even go back millions of years, most of human history was an exposure situation where the ecosystem was regularly whole food, minimally processed. So bread was made, pasta was made, but it was processed in the house. No chemicals to your point. There was no pesticides, maybe fertilizer as like, you know, horse manure to some extent, but we didn't have these industrialized chemicals that are being placed on everything. And to your other points that are very clear, stress was different. Most stress was acute and non-chronic. And now we tend to have much more of a chronic stress. And that has a massive effect on the immune system, which now we know clearly communicates with the microbiome bidirectionally. And that's driving all of this change. And this has been roughly a hundred years, maybe, where we've made this massive sea change in all the antecedent risk factors for potential differences in microbiome. And then we wonder why we're now seeing more disease. What is the 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 2023 understanding of what our microbiome from a from a perspective of biodiversity looks like now when we think of diseases like ADHD autism allergy do you have a sense of how that the shape of it is is it just biodiversity weakness is it certain specific species what do we know now you know this is a really very good question but before i go into diversity please let, give me a minute just to talk about what are the microbiome uh, uh, environment or what are the enterotypes there? And as we uh, mentioned, people think only of bacteria. But to me, we really have in our body both bacteria, fungi, viruses, and as you say, archaea and parasites as well. So it's very important for us to look at all of it. And you know, it's so funny how I started this uh, thinking about it. It go, takes me back to the early 70s when I started, when I did my doctorate on the candida of all things, which is the fungus. And you know, what happens, uh, my, my topic of uh, this dissertation was, or my PhD was to study how steroids and antibiotics affect candida. And as you know, once you use, for example, antibiotics, you are killing the good bacteria and the bad bacteria that causing an infection. And because of this, by getting rid, I mean, it's good to kill the infectious agent or the pathogens, but at the same time, killing the good ones has it's a detrimental effect or side effect. And that's where it gives the opportunity for candida, for example, to overgrow. And then when candida overgrows, it start to cause uh, issues. So it's very important for us to think of the two. And that's where I started to advocate in 2010. And uh, as a matter of fact, the first time I wrote an opinion piece, I said, we should look at all of them. And I told them the story uh, why, you know? And now to my delight, it's becoming clearer that other groups are starting to uh, re realize the same thing. You know, so these organisms, bacteria and fungi, when they are uh, living together, they interact together. They affect each other, both positively. They help us. Even candida, which everybody is afraid of, you know, candida at low level is really good thing to have. 
and we did a study, we found about 70% of people have candida there, but at low level. When that low level, it can break down some uh, food uh, which gives byproducts for the bacteria, the good bacteria to grow. So they are helping each other, as you said, symbiosis. Okay, so that's as a background. So now we go into the diversity. You know, diversity to me, it's like our society. The more diverse the society, the more flavor you have, the more strength we have, okay? And in our body, the more diverse the microbiome, both bacteria and fungi, the better our health is. And that's why when we are, as you, as you uh, alluded to, the way we are eating now, processed food and this sort of thing, what it, what's doing is reducing this diversity. And you know what happens, just to make it simple, if you reduce this diversity, what you are doing, you are increasing the proportion or the amount of pathogens, those organisms that can cause issues to us, health issues, okay? And because of this, low diversity is not great. What we need to do, we need to do something to increase this diversity, which means we are incre increasing the good bacteria, lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, and the other good stuff, as well as the uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, for example, which is yeast. As you know, it's a baker's yeast, which really have been shown to be elevated or the level of it is very high in healthy people. You see? So that's why we need to do everything we can to increase this diversity. One of it, of course, is diet, but there are other factors which you, you uh, know, like exercise. We talked a little bit about stress and this sort of thing. So we need to do whatever we can to increase this diversity where we have more good guys in our gut as well as in our skin and other parts of the body like vagina, for example, so that we have a good health all over the place. Yeah, and, and I'm going to piggyback off of that because I think that's a really nice transition to your earlier statement about different ways the microbiome establishes itself naturally, and one of them is breast milk. And I think very clearly in society now, at least in the United States and parts of the world, we're seeing more and more formula uptake as a convenience factor. And formula has now added back between three and five human milk oligosaccharides, these, these certain long, I mean, short sugar molecules that are specifically used by just our bacteria do we also know that there's of the 220 that are in breast milk is there any function of that within the the yeast space the fungal space is that unknown yet because i know the 220 are very clearly associated with different metabolites that help heal the gut itself and feed the gut itself what do we know there you know with respect to the fungus we did a study about the metabolites you know where what we did especially we looked at people with uh, with Crohn's disease, okay? And what we did, two things I want to talk to. I want to talk about this, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about the metabolites, which we are looking also in good, good bacteria. So what we found, if you take, uh, uh, we did one experiment, we looked only at bacteria, which is pathogen, E. coli, Cirrhacia, uh, Marcissans, and Candida, tropicalis. And we see, we saw that each one alone produced some metabolites. Just to make it simple for the audience, metabolites are really small chemicals, you know, small molecules, which are produced or uh, basically secreted by these organisms. Okay. So what we found, 
when you add the three together, this pattern in, of metabolized changes, okay? It becomes like as if when they are to, uh, each one alone will produce a certain set of metabolites, the two different set, you put the three, oh my goodness, they come out with even different set. And what we found, there are at least eight different metabolites that are expressed when the three come together, okay? And of course, these metabolites, they are chemicals, so they have certain effects, okay? Some of it, of course, if we have the wrong uh, metabolite, you know, uh, that it could affect us uh, in a negative way. But if we have metabolites such as have short chain fatty acids, for example, which are good guys, good chemicals, they will help our immunity. They have our gut lining. Okay. So that in itself in the uh, milieu uh, uh, of having organism in the gut. Then what we did, we did another study recently uh, where we looked at, we took good probiotic strains known to be uh, generally regarded as safe and we grew them and we start to look in what sort of metabolites are there okay and really it's fascinating you have different organisms have or uh, different uh, like bacteria and yeast they could have different metabolites okay and now we're starting to put it together is it better to have one uh, uh, like uh, bacteria, or should we have a couple of different bacteria that can give us different metabolites, you know? And this is now an active research area, which I hope very soon will be published because this will tell us, you know, why, for example, good to have a certain probiotic, okay? Uh, uh, because it may bring you some of these good metabolites that are going to help us and protect us both with respect to uh, uh, uh uh, affecting our gut lining to reduce leaky gut, as well as to communicate with our gut, uh, the brain, gut-brain access, which I know you wanted to go after later on about autism and other neurodegenerative diseases, you know. So it's really beautiful. Uh, uh, I feel we are living in good time now because we are learning so much about these new things and hopefully we'll be able to harness them to come out with better ways to improve the health, uh, maternal health, as well as the health of others. Right. And I, and again, going off of your ecosystem discussion, I know you've used before, I think a sandbox analogy, and I've always used the concert analogy where it's a lawn concert and everyone comes with their blankets first and whoever's there first sort of tends to <laughs> gain access to the real estate. And, and in this new environment, we're starting to see maternal transmission of microbiome to the child. If mom's microbiome is already established negatively with the wrong bugs that's actually what takes root in the child and starts to gain the real estate so it's a lot harder to manipulate that microbiome are we seeing the same with fungus i'm guessing that is true as well so if mom's passing a large candidal burden more than expected that would be problematical for the child correct uh, absolutely correct you know a few years ago a dermatologist uh, a friend of ours in the department where i am a professor, as you know, she had a baby and she started uh, to breastfeed. And then she started to talk to me because she started to feel that there is a role of candida, you know, in there. And yes, definitely the fungi also can, if, if the mom is overburdened, like if the mom eats a lot of sugar, for example, again, to go back to the diet, 
guess what? We have a lot of candida and that in itself will translate not only to come to the baby in their gut and mouth and this sort of thing, but also the skin. You know, even the mom's skin, like breastfeeding, she had to, my, this colleague of mine, she had to really uh, try to uh, uh, disinfect her uh, uh, breast, you know, so that she can make sure we don't have any candida there while she is feeding the baby and this sort of thing. So, yes, we have really, it's like uh, depending on what the, what the mother original or uh, microbiome, this could be translated into what happens subsequently. So if you have a lot of candida, if you have a lot of this E. coli, for example, again, this will impact and we need to try to see, okay, how can we bring it back? Yeah, and, and I don't think it's coincidental that the upstream factors that drive sort of a dysbiotic bacterial microbiome are very similar to the same issues that will drive fungal overgrowth. If if I think about that correctly, I know a lot of the dietary restrictions in somebody on a diet that's trying to reduce fungal growth is reducing refined carbohydrates and simple sugars. Oh, by the way, those are the exact same bugs that drive certain bacteria that tend to be pathogenic, especially the gram-negative rods. Do we have a sense of why that is? Um, how? Because again, I'm trying to think of this upstream historically. Why would a system have developed that normally is symbiotic to, to protect the host because the bacteria in general don't want to kill the host. They don't want us to die because then their then their playground dies, right? So yeah. their sandbox, as you state, is gone. So what would be what would be the sort of understanding as to the competitive nature of of how this came to be? Do we have a sense of the anthropologic reasons as to why things are going the way they're going as opposed to what we would expect them to do? You know, basically what happens, uh, this is really a very good question because this is an area also we really need to understand more and more. I mean, we started looking at it. Okay, what happens when these organisms, first of all, as uh, let's, let's start at baseline. As you say, in the sandbox, we have the good guys and the bad guys, and hopefully we have all the good guys. And they play together. Now, sometimes it's it's very complex to try to define, you know, how these kids play. The same really in the environment of the gut. So to me, it depends on what we have there and what we provide these organisms. And the issue is if you start uh, having a lot of stress, if you start smoking, for example, your diet is out of balance, you are now starting to increase the a level of the bad guys. And you know, it's so interesting. Like there is study showed when you kill the good bacteria, which keeps candida down, when you kill it, guess what happens? When candida overgrows, it then starts to control the good guys. So they want them down because now I have the opportunity to control. So we really need to find a way. How can we change the uh, ecosystem to become more in favor of encouraging the, the good ones. And that's why we talked about, you know, I know we mentioned a lot of sugar, but having fiber, having less meat, because what we are doing, red meat, for example, especially with saturated fat, so much of it, guess what? We are encouraging the bacteria that have pro-inflammatory uh, uh, effort, where they start to have uh, different cytokines like IL-6, interleukin-6, to increase, and that will increase the inflammation. So that's why we need, if we want to try to balance our gut, we need to have a holistic approach. 
it's not one thing will fix it. Let's start to look at the diet. Let's modify. Let's try to do a little bit of exercise. I always tell people, you know what? It's really, really good to exercise. And these days, I am I am really so happy because I exercise a lot. And I have mentioned maybe before about I take my dog for a walk and I love it. Because it's not only exercise, it also relieves the stress, you know. So if we can put all these different factors together, it will really definitely be in the right direction and it will be balanced. It's in our hand. It's not something which we cannot do. It's difficult, but baby steps. Take it baby steps and then start doing even a little bit of uh, walk, a little bit of uh, meditation maybe. Just take a break during the day. Uh, try to change your food slowly. You don't have to be overnight. Sometimes we are, we human beings are extremes. We are used to eat all, <laughs> you know, processed food. Now we are going to eat vegan. No, take it easy. Do it stepwise till your body gets used to it and then transfer in a nice way. Well, and I think to your point, stepwise is always the best answer. Because if you look, um, some of the other guests I've had on the podcast over the years, the human system is so capable of eating diverse food types. Redundancy is incredible in the ability to take macronutrients and convert them into the energy we need. You know, you can look at somebody who eats a predominantly plant-based diet in one location versus the Inuit Eskimos who eat primarily whale blubber and this in another location. Another group over here is eating predominantly small animals and root fibers. And in the end, even we've looked at breast milk, breast milk component come out almost identical, food structures come out. And so the redundancy, I think, gets to the point of the only thing that generally is problematical in, in my years of study now is processed American food. To your point, yes. yeah. it is the high saturated fat, high refined carbohydrates that are the problem. All the other diverse diets, whether it's Middle Eastern, whether it's Eastern Asian, whether it's South American, everybody does well on them in general. Yes. It's, yes. it's when we yeah. just, I mean, so all the diets, to your point, vegan, this, that, and the other, it doesn't make much sense to me. What makes sense is eating the planet's food the way God gave it to us or however you see the world is, is how that was given to us. So let's shift let's shift gears a little bit because I think you've you've sort of hit that very nicely as to what the the approach needs to be but I really want to sort of go a little deeper now because people start talking about I have candida I have this I can't control it and I think one of the main problems here is the lack of understanding around biofilms and I think biofilms are super super important so one explain a biofilm to the audience and to explain what is the nature of the trickiness about reducing the biofilms protective cap that then prevents us from gaining access to the candida and third piece do we really need to get rid of it all the answer i think already the is no you've sort of said that so maybe some biofilm is okay go there yes, yes. so first of all what is the biofilm biofilm i i tell you we all have been exposed to biofilm the technical term for example the plaque and our teeth is a biofilm you know, the first time when I was doing some research on the hull of a ship, you know, when you have this uh, stickiness in the outside, this is a biofilm. In the pipes, sometimes at home, when you have, you, you can see some slimy material, this is a biofilm. So a biofilm, what it is, usually bacteria and fungi, they come stick to something. We call they adhere to a surface. Once they adhere to surface, what they do, they are smart because the first thing they want to do is to stick to try to gain access to whatever food they want. But then they want to protect themselves. 
And to protect themselves, they start producing what we call matrix. Matrix, it's like a jello which covers these organisms. Okay, so the, it's like imagine you have a jello, and inside the jello you have NMM or grains or whatever. The grains or the NMMs are the microbes, and the jello is the matrix. So why is this important? You know why it's important because this jello protect these organisms. In other words, if you want to try, if you have these microorganisms, whether bacteria or fungus, and you want to get rid of them, and they are living inside the biofilm, you can't get rid of them. You, because they are protected in sort of the shell, okay? So what you need to do, you need to break it down. But not only you can't get rid of them with antibiotics, also our immune cells, they really are unable to function. In fact, many years ago, I published a paper where we showed, we took a phagocytes, you know, one of the uh, immune cells that come and phagocyte bacteria. We put it in a biofilm. Guess what? It was like sitting in its own. It's not uh, trying to encircle and ingest those bacteria as if it becomes passive, you know? So that's why it's very important for us when we have a biofilm that formed in, whether it is in our teeth, that's why we brush our teeth, or in our gut, we call it digestive plaque, okay? We need to get rid of it. And to get rid of it, it's not easy. And that's where in our research, as you know, we looked at what sort of micro probiotic strains that can break this biofilm and what enzymes we have. And we came out with this uh, Biome, biome product and for the sake of transparency this is as you know a company i started but the good thing about it what i like is that we are really science-based we published you know we just published two nice uh, actually three a clinical trial we showed that not only it changes the microbiome balance and breaking the biofilm but also affect the health uh, the gastrointestinal symptoms so in a way you break this down Biofilm. Now, the question which you also asked me, should we destroy all biofilms? No, because there are some, like I was reading about this, because this question keeps coming, okay? And I looked at, okay, will beneficial bacteria form biofilm? And lo and behold, I found very good uh, literature to show that lactobacillus, you know, which is a good bacteria, can form biofilm. And you know why it does it? It does it so that it covers the gut lining and in a way prevents the pathogen or those that cause disease from sticking. Remember what I said, the first thing will happen is if you can stick uh, into a surface, okay? So having a biofilm from the good guys will prevent those pathogens to come and stick and really cause, form a biofilm, okay? So we right. need to have those good good biofilms, but at the same time, you know, this is a really challenging because I was thinking about it because, <laughs> you know, Chris, like you, somebody asked me, what do you do? I said, because you are telling us we should destroy the biofilm. I say, you know, the good news is, yes, when it is a pathogenic biofilm, you destroy it, but at the same time, you are given the good microbes as well, where they can rebuild. So in a way you are supporting them too. Once you get rid of the bad guys, we need a small biofilm, which is good to prevent the others from sticking again. 
Yeah, this is sort of like the analogy that if you have two competing groups that don't do well, one is a pathogenic group fighting, causing chaos and everything. Once that group is suppressed, you need to take over their property and then enhance it with folks that and educate them, <laughs> get them growing in the right direction. So everybody becomes societally functioning together. And so your point is very, very well taken. So what do we know, Mahmoud? What do we know about, because um, medicine and again, I know I know you're a PhD, but your company, you've done tons of research here. Medicine has done a very poor job in understanding how to disrupt biofilms medically, yeah. from what I say, from pharmacologic perspective. But yeah. there there are plants that do this. And I'm thinking of two just off the top of my head, N-acetylcysteine, which is a molecule that does have biofilm disruption, but also perilla. What else do we know about trying to reduce biofilm accumulation? I know perilla, especially, I think, has an effect on candida's ability to adhere like you're sure. talking about sure you know the other uh, product like for example garlic garlic mm -hmm. really can do a good job of breaking down biofilm in fact i published a few papers about garlic and how it does uh, kill candida you know so there are some good uh, good uh, like uh, what you call apple cider vinegar also yep. have been shown to also break down biofilm so there are as you say natural products which can help us uh, do, do this. And sometimes this is really important because as I mentioned, Yuri, using uh, uh, drugs will not get rid of these biofilms because they are resistant. I published, you know, many years ago, I was funded by NIH to look at uh, microbial biofilms. And in fact, uh, I, I published a lot in that area, like for 12 years, I was funded and we characterized all these biofilms. And uh, so, it's really very, very important that we try to follow ways which can get rid of these biofilms. Maybe naturally, as we mentioned with the stuff, will be the best way. But you know what? We also uh, published a number of articles about what sort of drugs can get rid of that. Like in, in extreme cases, somebody can use, uh, for example, an antifungal that we have shown. Uh, which which one, and we publish that, uh, which can get rid of that bio, biofilm, you know. But to me, I think, since we are talking about, in general, normal people, you know, healthy, normal, ordinary people you find, I think following the uh, uh, more natural approaches, you know, Beleria, as you say, also the garlic, the uh, apple cider vinegar, and, and eating the proper type of food will help it and get rid of this biofilm. Right. And and ultimately prevent inflammation, which again, you alluded to earlier with, you know, for me now, I think I spend more time in immunology than any other discipline of medicine because everything keeps coming back to the immune system as the center of dysfunction, the microbiome's connection to the immune system, driving inflammation, which then leads to, as you alluded to earlier, leaky gut, which then falls into the world that Alessia Fasano has done a bunch of work in there. And so if we can control the growth of pathogenic microbes, whether it's fungi, bacteria, archaea, we can control the leakage, which then will hopefully disproportionately decrease the diseases that we're seeing, whether it's food intolerance, food allergy, you know, other diseases. And then we get into the neurobehavioral world because the bi-directional crosstalk between the gut and the brain. But before I go there, what about quorum sensing? I've been reading a bit more and more about quorum sensing where these bacteria 
and I don't know if fungus do this as well, but they actually have this ability to communicate with each other to start to do work within the biofilm. Do we know much more about that yet? You know, I think there is a lot of research in quorum sensing, definitely, particularly in the bacterial world, as you mentioned, but also in the fungi. And a lot of the time, that's where I I, I mentioned before, when you put these organisms together, they start interacting and then they start changing their behavior. So definitely quorum sensing is one of the mechanisms that allow them to say, okay, now I'm living with this uh, with this uh, friend here or, or foe, what do I do to try? And then that's where they change their uh, behavior and genetic uh, appearance. The other thing, what we know, what we notice with this, but to go back into inflammation, we did this study, which we published, uh, 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 Luca, Luca Di Martini, where he did an animal uh, study, and he looked at when you have uh, elitis, you know, like IBD, you know, we find there is an increase in pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now, when he used the probiotic, you know, with the amylase, guess what? There was a 36 uh, differential gene expression when you put the antibiotic. And when we looked at the details, it was really very interesting. And it's published paper in IBD where they showed that the anti-inflammatory cytokines increased whereas the pro-inflammatory decreased. So in a way, when we try to create these pathogens, we are reducing uh, uh, what you call inflammation or, or inflammatory symptoms and at the same time, you really improve the other symptoms. Like, for example, this paper, which we just published maybe a month ago uh, in Beneficial Microbes, we showed that we are able to decrease bloating, flutulence, as well as abdominal uh, discomfort. And then, you know, it's so interesting. We uh, looked at secondary endpoints. These are the primary endpoints. Secondary endpoints, we were able to have less constipation and regularity improve. But we put, just to get some insight, okay, if we improve these uh, inflammatory symptoms and these uh, uh, GI symptoms, will we affect anxiety? And guess what? We showed that using the GUD, uh, seven really uh, um, questionnaire that anxiety went down to it. So you can see, really, it's like sort of one come after the other. You reduce the inflammation, you reduce the GI symptoms, but also we feel much better. Yeah, absolutely. And I was looking actually this morning at your inflammatory bowel disease paper in 2023 of March of this year, and I thought it's super fascinating the evidence of the fungal association with regulating IBD. And you showed there that damage to the gut epithelial lining by candida lysin, so fungal peptide toxin that was being secreted. You also noted increased biofilm production resulting from the interaction between candida tropicalis and serratia marcescens, which you earlier you alluded to earlier as well as E. coli. But what I found super interesting, and this is another one of these things that keeps showing up in all the research I'm doing, is damage of macrophages caused by fungal peptide leading to the activation of nod-like protein-3 inflammasome-dependent IL-1-beta production. That, Mahmoud, keeps showing up everywhere I turn. And where it keeps primarily rising is uric acid. Everything I read about fructose ingestion, which again comes down to this refined sugar, refined carbohydrate, 
is leading to all kinds of dysfunction and inflammation. Oh, by the way, it's down-regulated T-regulator cell function, which then has an effect on inflammatory overload, potentially leading to dysfunction and allergy, dysfunction and immunology, leading to autoimmunity. Right here it is again. Your paper, I was like reading it this morning, laughing to myself. This <laughs> thing keeps showing up that yeah, yeah. candida are changing the ability of our body to fight because it's cranking up NLRP3 pyroptosis. Yes. And so if we're sitting there in a pyroptotic state, which is this fire state, I know you were just in Greece. So this is some of this Greek words, <laughs> you know, it's, it's this pyroptosis. And if candida are turning out pyroptosis, it gets to the point of you need to control your growth of all excessive pathogenic microorganisms because you're basically putting yourself into inflamed fireball state, which then can lead to all these diseases. And this is where I want to segue now into your world of neurobehavioral communication between the gut and the brain, because I think this is one of the major drivers of neurobehavioral dysfunction, whether it is anxiety, mood disorder, depression, uh, autism, ADHD. I think this is one of the cruxes, one of the, the center capstones of understanding. So let's start to go into your research of, of the gut connection to the brain. Yes, I think this is really very exciting area. And I'm, I'm personally, and you know, because of my son, Afif, he's, uh, one day he said, dad, we have to do something for the uh, autistic uh, autistic patients. So what we did, he, uh, you know, by home came and said, contacted their network. Can you, if you have autistic child and non-autistic child, can you send us fecal samples and we'll share with you the data and this sort of thing. And lo and behold, so many people responded. So we got all this data, these samples. We did sequencing for bacteria and fungi. And we tried to look at, okay, what is the imbalance in these kids in their gut? Because as you know, also autistic kids, apart from behavioral issues, they have GI issues, gastrointestinal issues, okay? So when we looked at it, you know, it we found that there is an elevation in one bacteria which have been shown to cause an epilepsy, you know? So, and you know, when we, we went back and to see, okay, does these kids have uh, uh, epileptic, uh, you know, uh, incidences? And it looks like, yes, they do. And then when we looked at the literature, they do. So, so that bacteria is increased, okay? And then we looked at another bacteria, we found that it is down, it is the level decreased. And that one, what we found out, it can break down fibers. So these kids, sometimes they have issues with food because their gut they cannot break down fiber. But then, of course, we looked at fungi and we found that candida, it's highly elevated in these, in these patients, you know. And that really was very interesting to us, you know, because uh, as I always joke, like I'm a fungi, I like I like to look at fungus, and we start looking at the literature, and you know there were some other people where they used fluconazole or diflucan uh, for autistic kids, and they start to see some improvement, which it kills can. So with that in mind, we look when we compared the microbiome of both the autistic kids and their sibling with no autism, and identified this difference, we now are in the process of, okay, what can we do to rebalance our uh, uh, the gut of these kids or the microbiome of these kids? And now we are working on putting a formulation together and hopefully we are going to start testing uh, testing it uh, very soon. You know, it just takes takes time, as you know, to come out with the right. And, and also 
you, you know, I, I thought I want to mention this paper, which we published in April 2023 in gastroenterology, where it tells you how you can modulate the microbiome, okay? Uh, and you, and by understanding the big data, how can you come out with a new products to treat this uh, imbalance it's in gastroenterology uh, it was really we took Crohn's disease as an example how we how we showed like the imbalance identified what fixed it how we validated it so anyway we are following the similar approach now with uh, autism I think this is the way forward because we have thousands of people who send their samples to biome and we uh, are identifying certain cohorts and then we analyze based on that what's the dysbiosis and hopefully we can uh, adjust, uh, you know, hopefully we can come out with a product which we will test and validate and hopefully we'll be successful. That's what keeps us going. You know, it's I, I think it's an ex exciting time. Now. Yeah, it's a very exciting time. And to your point, again, we're looking at the upstream reasons, not the downstream symptom management, which is part of the reason, again, that I love the move that's happening within all of medicine. And I, I have to say, it's not MDs that are changing the world. It is PhDs that are changing the world. And, and it has been a blessing to watch the bench come to the clinic and I've seen that more and more and more. And I think functional medicine has been a big movement here, getting a big biochemistry focus and, and allowing what your work is doing to be translated into the clinic instead of the way it was forever, which is the medical doctors say, this is what it is. Here's the drug that treats the symptom and we don't get anywhere. So kudos to you for your decades of research looking at this. Will this study have a placebo arm? So you're going to have a, a powder yes, that yeah, is a yeah. placebo versus the probiotic? Yeah. It's similar to what we did with this uh, recent study in the beneficial microbe with the placebo arm, because it's very important to try to see. You know, sometimes you see placebo effect as long as you see that the active ingredient or the formulation has significant difference, which is, uh, that's what we are after. Yes, definitely it will be uh, with the placebo on randomized uh, uh, trial, you know? I look, uh, I look forward to seeing that data. You know, one thing I want to comment about what you said, you know, about PhDs and MDs. I, I served uh, in the uh, academic advisory uh, committee for uh, the hospital I work with. And I was in a meeting, I was the only PhD. I said, uh, you know, and they were talking of anything. I say, you know, I want to ask you something. Why do you think it's important to have a PhD? I'm the only PhD here. And then it was a rhetoric question. And I told them, you know why? Because we form a complementary approach. You guys can observe what's going on. And then we come and collaborate together where they, we can come out with a more comprehensive answer to it instead of each one of us in our you know uh, uh tower you know we need to work together we need to help each other because that's the way that we can advance uh medicine and help our patient you know 100 uh, percent yeah that is so so true so your company biome spelled b-i-o-h-m has been around for seven years now yeah, like six years. Yeah, from seventeen. Uh, uh, seventeen, we started. Right, and you guys have collected in a massive amount of data now, 
And yes. this is beautiful because now you can start to do queried learning, potentially AI getting involved. I mean, you could start getting really sure. granular to change disease onset moving forward, which I'm grateful for. And for all the guests, I highly encourage everyone to go to the website. I know you have kits that folks can go. Uh, it's biomehealth.com, if I remember correctly. Sure. And they can they can order a kit. So over a little over $100 and you get a personalized analysis of the microbiome of each individual. And I know you also give personalized nutritional um, in, in information about what's best to do. I, I find that uh, price point to be unbelievably generous. And so grateful to you for doing that because it seems like it should be a lot more expensive to get such incredible data. What else are you involved in other than the myriad hundreds of thousands of research projects? Do you have any other companies you're running? Are you doing anything else? Because I know you do a lot of teaching. I know you do an amazing amount of work. I tell you, uh, the other thing which I am doing now, which is, uh, you know, there is the antifungal resistant. This is a really big issue. I I got a grant from the National Institute of Health now, R01, you know, $3.1 million to try to uh, basically uh, find a drug to treat this candida auras. It's a multi-drug resistant organism. And I'm really so excited about, about that. Also, you know, it's, this is another story. Maybe sometime you and I will talk about uh, the, uh, you know, there is skin infection caused yeah. by fun, fungi, trichophyton, endotinia. This is a new thing that was uh, first reported in India. And it, it is terbinafine resistant. It's highly okay. resistant. So now the CDC and everybody, because we are starting to see it in the US saying, okay, what are we going to do to uh, control this? So this is another area which I I, I am going after. And it's, it's really exciting, you know. Does it? Does there seem to be a predilection for people who have eczema or people who have dysbiotic skin that are getting it primarily, or is it non-obvious? No, non-obvious, non-obvious. This, you know, because it seems the way that the, the uh, drugs are used, especially like in India and other, unfortunately, uh, underdeveloped countries, you just can go to the pharmacy and get what you want and use it, you know, uh, which, which of course will increase the resistance. Now, what the worry is that we are started to spread all over the the uh, world, basically, world. and we are starting to see it here. And the CDC just uh, uh, asked to put uh, proposals to do big surveys, and we are trying to do that to understand what is the incidence in the U.S. here. So this is another area which uh, it's exciting, you know. Yeah. It's very exciting. And I think yeah. you're at the front of the wave of understanding this entire field. You got into it early before others, and now you're the leader of it. And Thank as you. always, I'm Thank grateful you. for your research and grateful for your time. I Thank ask you. every guest one last question. We're coming up on our hour. Um, and so the question is pretty simple. If you had the opportunity to get one golden ticket that was given to you for a one item you want changed in the United States. You could give it to the president or Congress and they would have to act on it. While you're thinking of yours, I'll tell you mine. Everybody knows this who listens to the podcast. I would change school food. I would make every school have a chef, a kitchen and whole food only. No processing, no junk, no juice, none of that stuff. And force the the narrative around healthy microbiomes via food, 66% of the meals these kids eat. What would you ask for if you could take a golden ticket and change one thing? I will take a golden ticket to us to improve our education system for everybody in the US because our our major 
advantage, not just in the US, worldwide, is we need to educate our kids no matter what. So please improve the education system across the country. Amen. I agree with you 100%. That's been Thank said you. many times by many guests. Okay. And uh, yeah. as you and I talked offline, you know, uh, most of the people we meet are good people. Uh, it's very yes. rare that I meet people that I find to be um, abhorrent. Almost everyone I meet are wonderful people, regardless of their race, color, religion. And I think you and I have talked about this, that this is what we should be focusing on. And one of the biggest ways I see to do that is shut off the media, because they tend to yes. try and polarize us all to dislike each other. But yeah. Mahmoud, I appreciate you very much. Your research is especially incredible. You have done work that has opened my eyes to many things. And I highly encourage everyone to go to your website, your information. And I'm going to post a bunch of information on this podcast at the outro when I finish it. But I'm going to give you the last word, my friend. I appreciate your time. Thank you, my friend. It's really great pleasure. I loved it. And you are such a pleasant, pleasant. And I love what you said, that we are, there are a lot of good people and we always should have hope. Hope is the way to go. My mom used to tell me, Mahmoud, if you don't have hope, you will not go to heaven. <laughs> so hope, my friend. Okay. I love it. Mahmoud, have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Such a fun conversation with such a lovely gentleman. I really enjoyed this lively discussion because, again, it gets to the upstream reasons as to why we're developing disease from the root, the microbiome. Whether it's fungi, whether it's bacteria, whether it's soon to be learned about viruses and RK, how they are influencing us, the bottom line is they are, and we need to understand how to influence them to be more beneficial for us. It seems to always come back to the basics, solid nutrition, solid stress reduction, solid movement as exercise. Now, I don't think of that as exercise running marathons. I mean, I think it's something simple as walking daily, right? Avoidance of toxins, adequate sleep, right? These are all pillars of health. And we're now learning very clearly that to change those five pillars in the wrong direction then leads to aberrations in our microbiomes, whether it's in our gut, our lungs, our oral cavity, our sinus tract, on our skin, in the vagina for females, wherever it is, when we make decisions that are contrary to historical precedence of what is expected of our environmental exposure, we now start to see disease take root. And the microbiome is at the center of it all, with the immune system communicating bidirectionally with the microbiome as well as the nervous system communicating bidirectionally and the endocrine system and frankly systems biology in general. So for us, it's super important now that we start paying attention to these things, right? And Dr. Ganum has done incredible research looking at this space. And we're going to get into some of that right now. I'm going to read some of these papers that he did some work on as a little deeper dive into the science. He writes in his paper in the journal Gastroenterology, Volume 164, Issue 5, April 2023 of this year. Title of the article, Modulating the Microbiome for Crohn's Disease Treatment. Now, this is big because Crohn's disease affects a lot of people. And when I was in medical school, if I was going to pick one disease that I did not want, Crohn's disease was it because it has unbelievable far-reaching effects on the whole human system. So Dr. Ganum writes in this paper with his team, the central role of the gut microbiota in the regulation of health and disease has been convincingly demonstrated. 
polymicrobial interkingdom interactions between bacterial, the bacterome, fungal, the microbiome, communities of the gut have become a prominent focus for the development of potential therapeutic approaches. In addition to polymicrobial interactions, the complex gut ecosystem also mediates interactions between the host and the microbiota. These interactions are complex and bidirectional. Microbiota composition can be influenced by host immune response, disease-specific therapeutics, antimicrobial drugs, and overall ecosystems. However, the gut microbiota also influences host immune response to a drug or therapy by potentially transforming the drug structure and altering bioavailability, activity, and toxicity. This is especially true in the case where the gut microbiota has produced a biofilm. The negative ramifications of biofilm formation, including alteration of gut permeability, enhanced antimicrobial resistance, and alteration of host immune response effectiveness. Natural modulation of the gut microbiota using probiotic and prebiotic approaches may also be used to affect the host microbiome, a type of natural modulation of the host microbiotic composition. They go on to state, in this review, we discuss potential bidirectional interactions between microbes and host, and we describe the changes in gut microbiota induced by probiotic and prebiotic approaches, as well as their potential clinical consequence, including biofilm formation. And then they go on to say, we outline a systematic approach to designing probiotics capable of altering the host microbiota in disease states, using Crohn's disease, as well as, as excuse me, as a model of chronic disease. Understanding how the effective changes in the microbiome may enhance treatment efficacy may unlock the possibility of modulating the gut microbiome to improve treatment use using a natural approach. A couple key words there of importance. Natural approach, natural modulation, probiotic, prebiotic. What you're hearing here is an adjunctive approach to helping somebody with an autoimmune disease, not just drug for symptom or drug for immune modulation. This is, hey, how does this all work synergistically? What are we doing to alter some of the upstream targets that can hopefully prevent the need for significant amounts of medicine, hopefully make the drugs that we're using more efficacious long-term, and help the human immune system function in a better state? The plan now moving forward with this as well as an autism and as well as in other disease states for Dr. Ganum will be amazing because he now has this huge repository of data based on the microbiomes of all the people that turned in their stool samples to biome. And he can now pair these biome analyses with then therapeutic double-blind placebo-controlled trials looking at probiotics, prebiotics, potentially postbiotics in situations that he knows up front what the gut microbiome looks like. And then can we modulate that using the three phases of the microbiome therapy naturally to shift the focus in the direction that we want to see? Another fascinating paper that he recently published. He's a prolific writer, let me tell you. This one was in Frontiers of Nutrition. And it's called A Microbiome-Driven Approach to Combating Depression During the COVID-19 Pandemic. And this was published August of 2021 in, like I said, Frontiers of Nutrition. And in this abstract, he says, the significant stressors brought about by and exacerbated by COVID-19 are associated with startling surges in mental health illnesses, specifically those related to 
depressive disorders. Given the huge impact of depression on society and an incomplete understanding of impactful therapeutics, we have examined the current literature surrounding the microbiome and gut-brain axis to advance a potential complementary approach to address depression and depressive disorders that have increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. While we understand that the impact of the human gut microbiome on emotional health is newly emerging field and more research needs to be conducted, the current evidence is extremely promising and suggests that at least part of the answer to understanding depression in more depth may lie in the microbiome. As results of these findings, we propose that a microbiome-based holistic approach, which involves carefully annotating the microbiome and potential modification through diet, probiotics, and lifestyle changes, may address depression. The paper's primary focus, he states, is to shed light on the link between the gut microbiome and depression, including the gut-brain axis, and propose, again, a holistic approach to microbiome modification, with the ultimate goal of assisting individuals to manage their battle with depression through diet, probiotics, lifestyle changes, in addition to offering a semblance of hope during these challenging times. What more could you ask for? And And he finishes with a semblance of hope during challenging times. Who doesn't want that? The tricky part always remains getting people to change their lifestyle antecedent upstream triggers that are driving the downstream dysfunction that we see of as mental health disorders. The final common pathway to all of these disparate researchers that we interview week in and week out for this podcast is that the upstream reasons why any system of the system's biology approach goes dysfunctional, in this case, the microbiome and the mycobiome, is driven by the alterations in our exposome over the past hundred years. We have altered food rapidly, mostly highly saturated fat-laden, refined carbohydrate-driven, sugar-loaded foods. Those are the big troublemakers, as stated in the podcast. It's not the diverse diets from all over the world that are old school. You know, whether you're eating lentils and rice and vegetables in one location, or you're eating uh, chicken, uh, potatoes, and vegetables in another location, or you're eating fish and, and root tubers and salad in another location. The answer always generally ends up very healthy. It's the modern societal diet that is driving most dysfunction. And unfortunately, that's what we're feeding our kids 66% of their meals every day supplied by the federal government. What a mess. Secondarily, movement. So important. Clear data on the microbiome and exercise. There is such a bi-directional talk between the movement of the human body, the microbes that that exist within us, and then our metabolism. Super important. Mental stress clearly has an effect on the bidirectional flow of information between the vagus nerve um, of the brain and down to the microbiome. There is evidence now that chronic mental stress drives dysfunctional changes in the microbiome leading to disease. So that's a big pillar, big lever to pull on. So we have nutrition, we have movement, we have mental stress. What about toxins? Glyphosate, Roundup in all the food. Antibiotics in our food. Antibiotics in our bodies because we're eating the wrong foods like dairy, driving mucus congestion, driving ear infections. I mean, this goes on and on and on. But what about toxins from the air? PM 2.5, micron toxin chemicals that are floating in the air from cars and whatever, getting into the lungs, getting into the bloodstream, getting downstream. Those are problematical. BPA, plasticizers. We talked to Randy Jurdel how the epigenetic effect of these things are going on. I mean, on and on and on. Toxins are a nightmare. We need to reduce our toxin burden load. Big, 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 right? 
And then um, what about sleep? You know, Matthew Walker, Dr. Huberman, Peter Atia, all these excellent researchers and podcasters talking about the importance of sleep. Sleep has a direct effect on immune health and, oh, by the way, on the gut health. So those are the big five pillars right now. Sleep has been recently added as a major pillar as the research keeps coming, how integrated it is into into functional sleep health. I mean, I should have had a long time ago knowing what happens to an infant when they don't sleep and a toddler, how their emotional system is completely dysregulated. We're the same. So it's a big pillar, right? So the focus now needs to be on each researcher gives us the beauty of the science behind the why. Some of the ways to rectify the problems through, in this case, prebiotics, probiotics, postbiotics, you know, diet in general, stress reduction, all the things we're talking about. But each bottom line is the same. We've got to go upstream to change disease. And again, Dr. Ganum, phenomenal human, great researcher, love his work, just grateful that he was able to share his expertise and knowledge with us as we continue to search for better answers for maternal and child health. So with that, I leave you. I am appreciative of all of you. I hope everyone has a fabulous day. And as always, hug those beautiful kids. Now for the disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute development of a provider and or a patient relationship. Have a great day.